Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very excited to bring the conversation I had with Hein de Haas. Hein is a sociologist and geographer. He is currently professor of sociology at the University of Amsterdam. He has a bachelor's in cultural anthropology, master's in social and environmental geography, and a PhD in social sciences. Uh, he has worked in numerous places, including Oxford, and has worked in many development programs around the world. He is the lead author of the book, The Age of Migration, International Population Movements in the Modern World, and of the new book, How Migration Really Works, The Facts About the Most Divisive Issue in Politics. And that is what we talk about in this conversation. Uh, as you know, um, migration and immigration is a topic that's interesting to me, mostly because I think uh, how people talk about it is kind of incorrect at the very least. Hein has a very unique perspective and looking at it from tons of data in his wonderful book. And so we got to get into all the details. We start by talking about why immigration is a major issue globally and its connection with nationalism. We talk about distinctions between immigration, immigration, asylum seekers, and refugees, and how migration is not at an all-time high. We also talk about um, internal migration as opposed to external migration between countries. We talk about borders and is there a border crisis? We talk about the labor demand in the United States, low-skilled versus high-skilled workers, and how that much of the immigration problems and migration problems are an economic issue. We talk about the refugee crisis around the world, uh, hypocrisy on the political left and right, the future of migration, and many more topics. I uh, greatly enjoyed this conversation. I've been wanting to do a conversation on uh, immigration properly, and I couldn't think of anybody else better uh, to do the conversa conversation with. He is, I mean, is very brilliant, and he is uh, quite a lovely person, so I, I really enjoyed this conversation. As always, you can find this conversation, all the conversations at my Substack, conversiondialogues.substack.com, also on YouTube. So please uh, subscribe, like, follow, share with your friends. Um, really means a lot. You can also contribute. Uh, I appreciate all of the uh, contributions that uh, listeners make. It really helps to make the podcast better, and I'm trying to make it better and better uh, every every episode. So uh, much appreciated. And um, as always, I, uh, I, I look forward to hearing from people, both uh, online or through email. And so don't, don't be shy to, to reach out if you have uh, disagreements or comments. And uh, now I bring you Hein de Haas. I'm here with Hein de Haas. Uh, Hein, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to our conversation and talking with you all about your, uh, your new book. Thanks. Yeah, you have uh, this this uh, wonderful book um, that is sure to get people talking. Uh, the book is called How Migration Really Works, The Facts About the Most Divisive Issue in Politics. Uh, and it's uh, splendid. It really, really is. I really enjoyed it. Uh, one of the things about these books sometimes is it gets really uh, heavy on data, numbers, statistics, polls, things like that. And so there's definitely that in the book, but uh, you have a very nice way of giving a good narrative arc throughout each of the chapters and going through the 20 or so myths in the book about uh, migration. So it'd be fun to get into all of that. Before we do, uh, just tell listeners uh, quickly who, uh, who you are uh, professionally, academically, and, uh, and what you're currently up to. 
I'm a geographer and a sociologist, and uh, I'm from the Netherlands. And I've been doing research mm. on migration over the last 30 years, basically my whole academic career. And I started doing research by going, actually doing fieldwork in Morocco, one of the major origin countries of uh, migrants in Europe. Morocco is t- together with Turkey, the, the Mexico of Europe, mm. I often say, so it has a similar <laughs> position. And by living in Morocco for three years, really learned a lot about migration from the other side of migration, because normally we talk about migration from the perspective of so-called destination countries. And I really got drawn into why people migrate, the causes of migration. And later on, I moved to the University of Oxford, where I co-founded the uh, International Migration Institute, the University of Oxford, where we tried to really develop a new perspective, a new way of looking at migration, away from dominant perspectives that look at migration primarily from the perspective of destination countries, a more balanced perspective in a way to really understand migration from the countries where migrants come from in the first place, and then move on to yeah, look at what it means for countries of destination as well, but really look at both sides at the same time instead of this more one-sided perspective. And over the last, uh, I've been in Oxford for, I was in Oxford 10 years, and then I moved back to the Netherlands about eight years ago, where I'm currently a professor of sociology continuing to do research on migration and still directing the uh, International Migration Institute. So that's where I am. Mm, yeah, that's, that's great. So you, you have, you have uh, obviously, uh, uh, academic experience, but a lot of uh, kind of real-world experience, it sounds like, as well. So it sounds like you've very pretty much got your, uh, your finger on the pulse of, of this issue, which is uh, important. So I guess the, the first question here is, is why, why is this something that animates us, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a big issue. Immigration or migration issues are a big issue in the United States, uh, which we'll get into, of course. Um, yeah. I know it's a big deal in Europe as well. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's just a, it's a kind of globally, it's a big deal. It's, so why, why do we care so much about immigration? And, you know, if you want, we, maybe we can get this later. But, you know, do you see it as maybe connected with this nationalistic kind of pride or this kind of patriotism of like, this is what our country is and this is what it is not. And that's why people care. How do you, how do you see the importance of this issue? It's always been an important issue. It's always been a contested issue. So groups that are now seen as full, fully part of American society or any European society in the past were also the outsiders and became the insiders. I think what, what migration means is that it means change. Societies are always changing. In a way, migrants almost embody that change. All these changes are pretty abstract. We talk about globalization, economic changes, demographic changes. They're kind of invisible. Societies are always in flux, always changing. And cultures are changing all the time. But migrants embody that change almost. They are the the blood and flesh of that change. Mm. So if migrants come and live in your neighborhood who have different habits, look differently, perhaps have a different religion, it is kind of understandable that people find it upsetting um, that they have to adjust to that change. But it's not really the migrants themselves, perhaps. It's more that migration itself symbolizes that way our societies are always changing. And of course, challenge um, the, 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 the habits of people. Um, so I think migration has always been that force of change that questions who we are, um, that puts a mirror in our face. And in a way, it's logical that this happens if outsiders move in. I think when it gets tricky is where nationalism comes in and where migrants are being mm-hmm. framed by politicians as the threat that comes our way. I think then it, when it gets 
uh, but it can get dangerous when politicians start to sow division, um, portray the other as a fundamental threat to who we are. I think then it becomes more tricky in a way. But the fact that people feel challenged or feel that they're that migrant migrants challenge in a way the way they used to live, I think that is completely normal. It's always been that way, and it always requires some adjustment. But I think it's really because migration symbolizes and embodies that change around us, which is very difficult to grasp. And it's in a way the most concrete manifestation of that broader change we've always mm. been experiencing, obviously. The interesting thing is that over time, these fears generally ebb away. So groups, also if you look at American history, it is almost unimaginable that Catholic immigrants, for instance, were once seen, if you go back a century, let's say Italians or Irish were once seen as fundamentally unfit to assimilate into mm -hmm. American culture, which is very mm -hmm. difficult to imagine right now. Yeah. This is a kind of history of migration. It is really like that. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I have on the podcast often, you know, many historians, uh, different types of history, right? Uh, history of the Mongols, history of the Ottomans, history of the Romans, you know, different, different, different empires. And even if you go further back for our history as Homo sapiens, it, there's this interesting thing, probably going back to Homo erectus, where uh, humans and even some of our, our precursors to Homo sapiens, we, we, we are a, a moving species, right? We, 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 we get up, we walk out of certain countries and we, we explore and we, we settle in certain places. And yeah. you see this with nomadic groups. You see this, really, it's just a big part of what it, for, for our humanity, of what it is to, to go to different places, have new experience, new opportunities. So it really, it does feel like a very human thing. And yet we, we, we continue to struggle with this, you know, uh, to this day and, and have all of these, all of these you know, kinds of ideas about it. So it's interesting that I, I would agree with you. Change is hard. And, and I think, you know, I think we'll we'll get into it, but there's the specific elements of of change, uh, specifically uh, culturally, which becomes uh, I think most arresting for for many many people in certain places. So you know, before you know, kind of getting into some of the, the 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 myths and the numbers, let's just kind of set the table here with some of the terms uh, which can be helpful. You don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but you do talk about it in the beginning. There's these like different or these differences, excuse me, between these ideas of immigration. Uh, immigration, uh, asylum seeker, refugees, and there's other important terms. Maybe just kind of give us the the, the brief glossary here of, of the differences between these terms and so and kind of the pinpoint accuracy with some of them. So immigration is people coming to a country. So you live in a country and people coming in. That's what we call immigration. Emigration or emigration is people leaving your country. So both often happen always happens. So all countries are countries of immigration and emigration. But in some countries, the one is more dominant than the other. In rich countries, generally, immigration is dominant, which means rich, wealthy countries attract more people than people leaving. And for, let's say, middle-income countries, it's typically more people leaving than coming. Asylum is often confused with migration more in general. So asylum seekers are people who, in, in, who are looking for protection. So refugees typically, so people who flee their countries and try to apply for protection, which we often call asylum, in another country. Migration is more the movement of people in general, so that includes refugees or people who come for work or people who come to join family or we have student migrants or business migrants. So we have all sorts of categories. So refugees is only one of those categories. 
So migration is more the whole movement. Migration is, is basically a change of residence because there are many mm. more forms of mobility like commuting to work or going on a business trip. But that's not migration because it is not a real change of residence. We talk about migration when you cross an administrative boundary and settle somewhere else. That is what, what we no normally see as migration. And that includes a whole range of motives, indeed from fleeing a country. These are asylum seekers. People want to be recognized as refugees, labor migrants, family migrants, student migrants, business migrants. Mm. These are sort of the main categories we talk about. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's very, very helpful. I think, you know, even myself, people can get these terms confused. So I'm going to ask about the first kind of big thing you point out right at the beginning, which is great. Um, but just as a kind of footnote here, I think it's important for listeners to know that, you know, you're currently in, in, uh, in the Netherlands. You know, I'm currently in the United States. Uh, both countries have uh, ideas and or politics surrounding uh, migration. Um, so, you know, I think obviously as we, the conversation goes, we'll kind of zoom in to certain areas. Um, but really, it's a kind of a global thing that we're discussing, right? So we'll yeah. you know, kind of highlight, you know, in this country, it looks like this, whereas in this country, it looks like this. Uh, whereas other times there might be things more in the aggregate, such as international refugees or asylum seekers. But, you know, there's obviously distinct differences between the U.S.-Mexico border and, uh, you know, Syrian refugees in, in Turkey, you know, you know, et cetera. So there's, uh, we can kind of flag that when we talk about it specifically, but, but uh, and then more generally where things are at. So to start, um, you know, you start with the, these, these kind of myths in the book. And it's nice because each chapter basically is, uh, is, a, is, is steelmaning the argument for, for, for what uh, the myth is, right? So the first one is, is that immigration or migration, I should say, is at an all-time high, right? And uh, I think if I were to ask most people or listen to pundits, they would probably say some version of that. And so you make the claim that it's not actually that high. Um, and so you talk about the global rate being about 3%. Uh, refugees represent 7 to 12% of all migrants in the world, which equals, you know, 0.3% of the world's population. Um, so kind of give us the, the argument of people will, I'm sure you've heard this, people say oh, my migration is such an issue in, in Europe and in the U.S. and uh, other parts of the world. And you're saying not really. So tell us, why is it not really that at an all-time high? Well, I think we have to start with the global picture and then it's better to zoom in. Because I think what is happening is that locally there are, of course, issues with migration. Locally, you do see at particular border crossing points. You can see migration looks very massive, right? And from that, we extrapolate the idea that this migration in general is at an all-time high in the sense of the we get the sense, and this is really across the political board, all sorts of organizations also advocate this idea that migration is kind of spinning out control. I think that is a bit the underlying idea. That growing numbers the, of people from the global south are trying to find a way to the global north. And that's very much uh, reinforced by media images, whether we talk about the so-called caravans moving to the United States, where we talk about boats crossing the Mediterranean or the channel into Britain. It really reinforces this idea of a migration of desperation and a growing wave of people coming our way. And that is then based on a number of explicit and implicit assumptions about factors like growing inequality, poverty, conflict, and recently also climate change driving this 
growing tide of misery migration coming to the West. And this is pretty much shared across the political board. You may find different responses, like on the right, you'd rather hear we need to reinforce our borders even more, even more border enforcement to stop this growing tide from crashing onto our shores. On the left, you may hear more often, oh, we have to do something about inequality, warfare, um, and the development in poor countries. But the underlying assumption is actually pretty similar, that we have a migration crisis that is spinning out of control, driven by all those factors we were just mentioning. And more recently, climate activists have also um, contributed to this idea. So climate change is also going to lead to growing mass of people moving to the global north. Now, if you look at the data, globally speaking, we don't see an acceleration of migration. Of course, there's more migrants than there were 50 years ago, but proportional to world population, not much is actually going on. We don't see this growing tide generally out of the third, so-called third world to rich countries. What we do see, however, is a fundamental change in the dominant direction of migration. And I think that makes it understandable why from a European perspective, but also, let's say, from a white American perspective, things seem completely different. Because for four to five centuries, it used to be Europeans who were the ultimate migrants in the world. So when Europe mm. colonized the rest of the world, Europeans moved out to yeah, colonize the Americas and later on other continents. They were the ones who who moved without asking permission, obviously. I sometimes say, well, mm -hmm. that was the biggest mm -hmm. illegal migration in human history because Europeans ventured out to the rest of the world and colonized the rest of the world. Since mm -hmm. the Second World War, those patterns have fundamentally reversed. First of all, Europe became uh, transformed with the decolonization, growing uh, economic growth in Europe, demographic change, all sorts of factors. Europe transformed from a continent of emigrants to a continent of immigrants. So more and more people started moving to Europe from former colonies, from so-called guest worker countries like Turkey, Morocco, other North African countries. And that, of course, for Europeans was something completely new. But it also meant that with the drying up of Europe as a source of migrants to the United States and other destination countries like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, that also their immigration changed in terms of where most migrants came from. And in the case of the United States, it particularly meant an increase in migration from Latin America, Caribbean, mm -hmm. and also Asia. So, mm -hmm. for instance, in the United States, the percentage of the U.S. population who is an immigrant is roughly 15%, which is pretty much the average in Western countries. That's pretty similar to a century ago. Although migrants come from quite different countries, almost the vast majority of immigrants a century ago in the United States came from Europe, some Asians, but it was relatively small. Nowadays, the bulk of immigration towards the United States is either from Latin America, Caribbean, or Asian countries. So it's really not about numbers necessarily. It's really about the geographical shift we've seen in dominant migration movements in the world. That is the real change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I was listening to what you're saying, I mean, I think the, the counter here could be, okay, okay. So, you know, there's not globally, there's big changes in numbers of, you know, uh, immigration or immigration, fine. But, you know, do people really care about, you know, migration patterns from, you know, Nepal to Bangladesh? Maybe not. Where people care is where there's, you know, radical differences in people coming from different parts of the world to other places that are fundamentally different culturally or, um, 
historically or in other uh, components. So as you're saying, you know, uh, people coming from, um, you know, p- parts of you know Asia or Africa or the Mideast and they're coming to, you know, uh, United Kingdom or France or Germany or Holland or uh, the United States or Canada. Is it more so that, yes, there's not a, there's not, migration isn't at an all-time high globally, but is it in certain pockets or certain places or certain countries or regions, it is uh, a little bit more elevated, or is that not quite true? That's definitely true from what I was just pointing out, that from a European perspective in particular, uh, I mean, many European countries also have a history of immigration. I mean, if you look at France, for instance, had a very long mm-hmm. history of immigration, but it was predominantly from Southern Europe. And of course, immigration to Europe has grown to some extent non-European, and I think that's a game changer from a European perspective. So the countries that uh, used to be colonized by European nations have now become origin countries of migrants to Europe. And that's, of course, a fundamental reversal. Uh, so yeah. this is not primarily about numbers. It's not like migration, like you were pointing out, migration is of all times, literally. It is indeed mm-hmm. a character of migration, how migrants may look like, uh, and, and, and that, that is upsetting for people. Um, mm-hmm. In the United States, it, it's, it's not even the numbers, really, certainly the relative numbers, because, as you know, the U.S. has always been a country of high immigration. Um, and a century ago, the relative proportion of U.S. population um, in terms of immigration was roughly similar as right now. But it's really the background, of course, of migrants has changed. But what is important to remember is that groups um, that used to be, that we now see as fully being part of the yeah, an American sort of nation, used to be seen as not really fitting in. I mean, there was a time mm-hmm. that uh, Catholic immigrants weren't really seen as being able to really fit into this idea of American being a white Protestant uh, Anglo-Saxon kind of nation. Mm-hmm. Same for Jewish immigrants, both in Europe and in, in, in yep. the United States. So those boundaries keep on shifting. There were even debates in the United States whether Sicilians were really white a century ago. And it's mm-hmm. almost imagin- mm-hmm. unimaginable to, it's not almost in, unimaginable right now. Or when John F. Kennedy was elected U.S. president, it was still an issue yep. that he was Catholic, which is very mm-hmm. difficult to imagine right now. So those boundaries mm. keep on shifting. I think it's very important to remember that. We are often blind to diversity of the past. And mm-hmm. in that sense, mm-hmm. um, they become us. And that is, I think, another phenomenon you see if you look at history of immigration. But definitely there have been clear geographical shifts. And I do agree that that makes it understandable why in the eyes of people living in particular countries, in particular in cities and neighborhoods where migrants concentrate, things do look very differently. Mm. But it doesn't mean that migration is spinning out of control in the sense there is this growing flux of people from the South desperately trying to, you know, overwhelm our countries or something like that. I think what drives actually migration is pretty similar if you look through the ages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I do want to talk about some of the increases in certain points in a certain kind of, we'll talk about 2015, I'm sure, in a minute, but... um, it is interesting, though. It is interesting. The United States is very, I do think the United States is somewhat unique, at least in the modern era, for so many different waves of immigration, land of opportunity, et cetera, all within one or two generations. You, you have this immigration wave um, in other places, but you'll have people there for hundreds of years or millennia. There's just a longer, richer history of uh, people coming and going. 
uh, in certain parts of the world, the United States is quite young. And so maybe that's what makes it, you know, kind of different in some ways or whatever, you know, not that it's better or worse, but it's just a little bit different. Um, you, there was something in the book you mentioned, which I never thought about, which I thought was important to highlight here as well is you discuss this internal migration, which was very fascinating or also known as domestic migration. And you talk about it's much higher in, in bigger countries, but that there's this migration from rural to urban, right? So folks, you know, I'm sure there's some economic components to this as well, but that you'll have people moving from rural areas um, and then they'll come to, you know, maybe not a city, but they'll come to, uh, you know, certain aspects of urban living or maybe suburban living or things like that. What is this uh, what, that we know or this, uh, the data on this uh, internal or domestic migration? So many more people move within countries than between countries. So roughly 12%, it's in the best estimate we have of the world population is in domestic migrants. So these are people moving within countries. And this domestic migration is particularly important in developing countries where you have this process of urbanization, industrialization which means that agriculture becomes less important as a source of living. More and more mm. people moving to cities, increasing education. We have mm. seen the same in Western countries yeah? up to one or two generations ago, this massive movement from rural to urban areas. Now, some of that mobility spills over borders, but it is only yeah, roughly one-fourth to one-fifth of total mobility in the world is international migration. Many mm. more people move within countries. China is a great example. There are more people moving within China. So migrants who, and China is a huge country. So people move yeah. from the countryside to some coastal city. That's a huge transfer in terms of lifestyle and everything. Uh, there are more internal or domestic migrants in China than there are international migrants in the world. And that just illustrates the huge scale of movement within countries. Actually mm. much more important than movement across borders. Another mm. pattern, I often call it a law of migration, is that if people leave their country, the vast majority of people moves to neighboring countries. So the number mm. of people that actually ends up, let's say in the United States, all the way from South America, Central America, is relatively limited compared to people moving within their countries or moving to neighboring countries. And uh, we often forget that, that most people mm. move to neighboring And it's the same for refugees. Most refugees end up in UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, it's estimated that 80 to 85% of refugees live in neighboring countries. And it makes sense because most people would like to stay close to home because they prefer to stay in countries that are a bit similar to theirs in terms of culture, religion, habit. But migration is expensive and it's a thing we often forget when we have this idea that misery somehow drives migration. Well, of course, people do flee countries. People do face poverty and inequality and oppression. But a lot of people cannot make it that far because the most vulnerable people are those who cannot make it that far, who get stuck in their own countries or who could, couldn't even leave their places. People who know, who, who have the resources to make it much, yeah, to much more distant locations tend to be already quite select group in a way from their origin countries. Mm. That is why we actually, migration is much more limited than we think because migration is a huge investment and it requires a lot of resources. So these are a few patterns. So most people stay actually very close to home. And we shouldn't forget that 97% of the world population has never left their home country. Hmm. Hmm. It's very interesting. 
uh, it's just, it's almost uh, frustrating that we don't hear enough about that. I guess it doesn't you know doesn't doesn't it doesn't uh, get people to click on the news articles as much. But uh, I think that's a really important point, and uh, I think it says a lot of different. I mean, when you have countries as big as China or India or United States, it can almost feel like going to a different country, right? If if, if I'm from yeah. Um, uh, you know, if I'm from Connecticut and I move to Montana, I mean, I might as well be living in a different country. <laughs> right? Exactly. So it, it's such a, it's such a big country, yeah. but just like, I mean, culturally, geographically, uh, you know, just a way of living, even if you live in, 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 uh, you know, Missoula or you live in, in, um, one of the, the bigger cities of Montana, it's just completely different in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been to both of those places and they're very different. <laughs> um, so it's just very, it's very, very interesting. So uh, what about, so let's, let's talk about borders, right? You say that borders are not really out of control. So I want to, I want to really kind of push you on this a little bit. I, in the United States, now granted, it's, it is sensationalized and we can talk about it in Europe countries too, but in, so there was, I mean, there's been, you know, Pew Research, Brookings, these are very center kind of think tanks here in the United States have put a lot of data out. Um, I'm going to mess up these numbers a bit, but at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, in 2022, we had over 2 million, I think some people say 2.5 million uh, people walking into, into, the, into the United States. Now, again, we can talk about double counting here. We can talk about um, you know, what their status is, whether it's asylum or refugee or both, uh, or whether it's, you know, just straight undocumented, that's fine. The fact remains over 2 million people came into the United States, um, you know, illegally, if you want, or in a kind of gray zone. I think the number, I don't have this in front of me, but, uh, in 2021, it was about, you know, 1.7 million. So, in, in two or three years, we've had, you know, over, over 4 million people come into the United States at the Mexico border. And this isn't just obviously Mexicans. This is people from all of Latin America and even other parts of the world. And, you know, it's an, it is an issue. I mean, it is an issue. Uh, you, you know, and I'm, you know, I know you're not a political scientist or politician, so we don't have to talk about what needs to be done and what are the fixes to it. But just on the data alone, wouldn't it? I mean, how is it not true at that the U.S.-Mexico border does not have serious issues? Like, that is not a way to kind of uh, process individuals of coming to this country if there's a lot of these things happening. And I'm, I'm not even talking about, you know, caravans of people coming in here. I think that stuff's very sensationalized. But the fact remains is there is massive amounts of people coming here in the past two or three years how how could we say see that, and then you know hear you say ah, borders are fine; they're not really out of control. What's the how do help me square these two things together? I think you have to understand. Obviously, I do address this issue in the book. That of course it's a huge problem what's happening on the border, mm-hmm. but in a way it's 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 a crisis created by politics. It is not something that you know. If you go back, it's it's actually quite useful to go back in history. If you look sure. at whether you look at the U.S.-Mexican border or whether you look at the border across the Mediterranean, how migration patterns were, let's say, when we go back to the 1980s, this was basically an open border, uh, which meant that people could more or less move back and forth, which a lot of people did. Mm-hmm. What we have been doing, both in Europe and the United States, 
is try to put a lot of resources in border enforcement without addressing the real causes of migration. Mm. Which means that we create this illusion of that we crack down on the border, but we don't really crack down on the real cause of immigration. I mean, there's a part of it is indeed to do with conflict and people fleeing Mm-hmm. No problems in their origin countries. But I, last January, I was in El Paso and Ciudad Juarez on the other side in mm-hmm. Mexico, talking to a lot of migrants and, and, and refugees with people waiting. Everybody's talking about reasons why they've left their country, but people also talk about jobs in the United States. And I think this is one of the elephants in the room mm-hmm. that I looked at border enforcement. I looked at workplace enforcement, for instance, in the US. I was mm-hmm. quite astonished to find out there are roughly three, 33 million businesses in the United States. On an annual basis, 10 to 15 employers get prosecuted in the United States for employing undocumented migrants. To me, this really shows there's no real political willingness to do anything about this because it mm-hmm. is very convenient. Immigration mm-hmm. is a huge, convenient source of labor. Mm-hmm. So you really have to understand the nature of this phenomenon because as we all know, if there's a demand and nothing will be done on the demand, people will keep on coming. And that's what people will tell you. The same when I go to Morocco, people will talk about jobs they could get in agriculture in Spain or in France or in Italy. And that's what ultimately keeps on people moving. Of course, there's a component of refugees there, but you wouldn't have the numbers you would have seen over the last two years without this huge labor demand you have in the US. Unemployment is at a 50-year low in the United States. The numbers of vacancies is at an all-time high. It also has to do with the post-COVID labor shortages sure. we're facing. Sure. And these are huge issues. So it's interesting to look, what do we really say when we say borders are out of control? What does it really mean? If you try to crack down on a phenomenon that is bound to happen if you have this high labor demand, you get all sorts of things, like people try to cross border illegally, and in a way you cannot stop it. But it is in a way a self-inflicted crisis. Because if you really want to solve this, and I do think it's, it's relevant to look at what can you do about it. Well, I'm not a politician. That's not up to me. I'm just saying there's a huge mismatch between um, what we allow to happen in the workplace, and everybody knows this. Whether you go to America, to Europe, a lot of migrants are doing all sorts of jobs, including a lot of undocumented migrants, that we know they're doing, and there's no real pol- political willingness to do something about it. So how unwanted is this migration really? And I think that's the elephant in the room. We've been trying to secure borders over the last 30 years, roughly, both in Europe and the United States. And it hasn't really resulted in anything, but it actually backfired in many ways. So, but I think now I would like to zoom out. Because, yes, if you focus on what's happening on the border, what's been happening on the border the last two years, you get this impression. But I think it is important to put things into perspective that the major increase in migration to the U.S. has been about legal migration. The number of temporary migrants being Mm -hmm. admitted to the United States has, I also documented it in my book, has gone up really fast and reached an all-time high under the Trump administration. It went down a bit because of COVID, and now it's bumped back to, I think, 5 million a year over the last uh, fiscal year. So the real increase in migration has not been about Illegal migration, as people think, it is really about the, the growing number of migrants that are being admitted to the United States and many other countries in the world because there's this huge labor shortage. What is less acknowledged is a lower scale part of that story. So we have seen a huge increase in the numbers of visas being given to higher skilled migrants, also in the United States, to 
students to business people, intra-company transferees. The real denial is where we talk about manual labor, about services, agriculture. And there we see a huge mismatch between the policy and the reality. And there, yeah, you can see that borders are out of control, but it doesn't mean that in general um, we are not controlling what's happening. I'm saying the, the big increase in immigration, both in Europe and in the United States, has, about been, has been about legal admissions of labor migrants. And that is a reality that you don't see, because when you hear politicians talking about cracking down on borders, we want less immigration, we want to control it, what you don't see, first of all, it's a repetition of the same policies we've been trying out over the last 30 years, which have obviously failed, in many ways backfired. Perhaps we can talk about that later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And secondly, there seem to be acts of political showmanship that conceal the real nature of immigration policy, which has by and large been an increase in the numbers of legal admissions of temporary migrants, both to the US and in Europe. And that's been the real source of increasing immigration. If you look at Border encounters, because you were talking about border encounters, there is indeed some double counting, but it also doesn't mean that all these people entered into the United States. But we still talk about significant numbers. But when we go back to, let's say, roughly 1990, we also had quite significant numbers of people trying to get into the United States. What we seem to see is that in a times of high labor demand, economy doing well, relatively low number of legal admissions, then illegal migration goes up. And when the economy tanks, when it goes less well, or numbers of legal admissions go up, we see illegal migration going down. So, but the real structural increase in immigration into the US, which is real, and the same for Europe, has really been about legal admissions. But that's not what you hear politicians telling us. And I have this graph Mm. in my book where I show the huge increase in legal admissions into the US, which totally outperforms what we see on the border. But Mm. all we see in the news is what's happening on the border. This is a real problem, but we have to put it in a broader perspective. Yeah, so that's that's fantastic. I mean, some of the the answers you give or some of the other things that aren't discussed are are some of the things that I've talked about with certain people that have kind of really thought about this, you know, kind of in a a holistic manner. And yes, there is... uh, the labor demand here, which is which is it's a huge thing, and you talk about it later in the book. So maybe we can we can kind of settle here for a minute because uh, these are kind of connected. Is yeah, there, there's this there's this piece of it where people do overstay their visas, and that is the I think that's something that you can't really kind of capture in an image or tell in a narrative on in media. Um, what you can tell is. Oh, caravans of people coming across, you know, Mexico into the United States. Oh, this is a big problem. And certainly there is issues with that. But yeah. really, people, that, as you're saying, people, the temporary uh, workers, uh, people overstaying their visas. Uh, these are, are more of, of issues here. But the, the thing about that is, is that then you'll hear, it would, which, is, which is very frustrating, I, I would say, at least from my perspective, is, well, these people are coming over here and... They're taking, they're taking jobs from Americans, right? Which is silly, right? Because if, if that was the case, why would there be, as you're saying, you know, 5 million people with temporary status? If people aren't applying to these jobs or there's not enough people or whatever, or people don't want those types of jobs, you have to do them somewhere, right? And we're not fully automated yet. We haven't got that far in, into, into the future. 
So it's one of those things where it's like you gotta you have to find it somewhere. Why 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 is there dishonesty or and or hypocrisy on no, this is actually what we're doing. We are asking people to come here and to work and to do all these things. And that's not because people are are immigrants are taking people's jobs here. That's because there's a labor demand. And so if you live in a big capitalist society and you have globalization, all these things, you're you're gonna need people to fill that role. So you 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 just mentioned it, how uh, you know, how does you know immigration go down when unemployment is up and and what's this correlation of you know yeah. immigrants stealing people's jobs how how is that not true and 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 how do we understand more about this you see an extraordinary high correlation between labor demand and how well the economy is doing and immigration i, I sometimes quip that you know the best way to bring down migration is to wreck your economy and there's a truth to that whenever the economy is doing bad not many people come and it's very logical when there's lots of vacancies, more migrants come. So migrants mm. are basically attracted by vacancies, by jobs. Um, research doesn't show any evidence that migrants really crowd out native workers out of the labor market. There's not much evidence for that at all. It is actually the other way around. It's the economy that drives immigration. And it, what it in a way means, and it's hard to swallow reality for, for politicians to acknowledge publicly, that if you live in a wealthy, open market economy, you're bound to attract migrants. So if you don't like immigrants, to put it the other way around, um, that's the price you pay for living in a wealthy country, in a way. And that's an inevitable nature of immigration that politicians don't want to acknowledge. And there are, of course, reasons why migration is such an attractive topic for politicians. I think from two perspectives. On the one hand, you have the classic immigration scapegoating. So migrant scapegoating. So people are unhappy about things. Like here in the Netherlands, there's a huge issue about the lack of affordable housing. Mm. Immigrants get blamed. Now, the lack of affordable housing has very different causes. It's not much to do with immigration, but it's very easy to say, well, it's because of the immigrants, rather than politicians pointing the fingers to themselves. A look at wage stagnation in the United States and many Western countries, low-income earners haven't gained anything from the last 30 years of economic growth. Their wages have either stagnated or their real wages have actually declined. Of course, the real cause of that is is a whole series of economic policies mm. uh, that we have collectively chosen for, but also politicians have designed and implemented. And of course, it's not attractive for politicians to point fingers at themselves and say, well, we have mm-hmm. messed up in a way and we need mm-hmm. to reform, for instance, our tax policy or something like that. Or mm-hmm. we have to protect workers' rights better or we have to increase the minimum wage. We say, well, it's because of immigration. It's very attractive to divert the attention away from politicians' own own failures or lack of responsibility-taking for people who are unhappy, mm. for good reasons. So if people do say, well, housing has become expensive, wages haven't increased, actually my purchasing power has gone down over the last years and decades, um, education has become more and more expensive. These are real, um, real complaints people have. It's very attractive for politicians to point a finger at immigrants. Mm. I think there's a second thing going on that is if politicians represent migration as this imminent threat, it is very attractive to position themselves almost as the saviors of the nation to position Mm. themselves as strong men. We are going to fix this problem, which partly has been created by politicians themselves. That is an interesting thing. I don't think it is coincidental that both in Europe and in America, the anti-immigration narrative came up, particularly after the end of the Cold War. 
Because mm. during the Cold War, and I grew up, I mean, I came of age in the sort of last 10 years of the Cold War. That, that was the whole issue we were talking about in the Netherlands. It was about the, the, the threat of communism. It was about nuclear warfare. And after the end of the Cold War, both in the United States, you had this Latino threat narrative that came up in Europe, this idea of asylum seekers crossing borders, suddenly became this issue. It's very difficult to prove this, but I don't think it's coincidental that this anti-immigration narrative gained a lot of strength since the end of the Cold War. Because it wasn't really that big of an issue if you go back to the 1970s, 1980s, for instance. So it's been put on the agenda, I think, by politicians quite, quite deliberately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does feel very uh, nefarious in some ways. Um, so talk, talk since we're since we'll stay on this in terms of uh, economics. So your claim then is it's an economic thing that drives uh, migration, right? Predominantly, people that are coming here. Yeah, Pre- predominantly. Yeah, yeah, predominantly. Yeah. Um, so talk about. I guess you mentioned different parts in the book. So we, we make this distinction. Maybe you, you do in, in other parts of the world as well, but that there's this low skilled and high skilled immigrants and some of the differences there. Uh, you talk about the brain drain as, as well of, you know, you have you know, high skilled immigrants that come here and take those jobs away from people. So the doctors, the lawyers, the you know, engineers and things like that. And there's not enough for people here in this country. And so, you know, they're making this kind of, you know, good versus bad kind of thing. But we do hear these conversations about kind of, quote unquote, low skilled versus high skilled uh, uh, immigrants as well. And are, are those good distinctions? And, and how do we understand them? And, and that, you know, low skilled immigrants don't just come here to, you know, work at McDonald's and then they're on, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, public. Uh, public programs as well, you know, this kind of welfare system kind of thing. I mean, how do, how do we understand these things accurately? I mean, there is this image, yeah, we make this dichotomy, right, between low and high skilled. I mean, many migrants are actually mid-skilled, I would say. Of course, we have the, the, the typical examples of uh, engineers and, and doctors coming in, or indeed of mm-hmm. harvest workers who are generally unskilled people. But a lot of jobs are skilled jobs in many ways. There are mid-skilled jobs. We talk but even about let's say, construction workers or plumbers or people with all sorts of useful skills or um, care workers. And a lot of that work is very difficult to automate. I think when you go back to the debates in the 19th, when I read old policy documents and political debates in the 1980s, 1990s, the idea was, well, automation will just, you know, make all these jobs obsolete. Actually, that hasn't turned out to be the case. There are a lot of jobs now in the economy, particularly when you think about aging now. Um, mm. that cannot be automated in a way, particularly when you think about all sorts of care jobs, but also think about mm-hmm. basic things like cleaning and, and cooking and mm-hmm. ironing clothes. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of basic jobs that um, that still need to be done by people and cannot really be outsourced to another country. So we see this in agriculture, we see this in services, catering, um, yeah, the hospitality sector, cleaning, personal care. And these are all jobs that, Actually, it's not easy to work on a farm. That's when many people think it's back-breaking work. You need to be young and highly motivated to do the kind oh, of yeah. work. Absolutely. And uh, that's not easy. And migrants are often particularly motivated to do that kind of work because it, it allows them to make a huge jump in terms of income compared to what they could earn in their origin countries. That's also why employers often like to employ migrants. But it is a fundamental yeah. truth 
that native workers don't no longer want to do those jobs. There is still native workers doing those jobs, but the number of them has shrunk. And there are some structural yeah. trends in the United States, but all across the West. And basically, these are three main trends. The first is growing education of the workforce, which means that more and more Americans, more and more Europeans want to do certain jobs that are sort of match their education and that tend not to want to do those lower skilled jobs anymore. Second factor is the emancipation of women, which means that a lot of work that used to be done by, let's say, housewives and mothers in around the house is no longer yeah. done by them because women have massively entered the formal workforce, which means mm -hmm. somebody has to do that work, looking mm -hmm. after the kids, uh, cooking, uh, and so on and so forth. And we eat out more and more in restaurants and then eating in McDonald's. And yep. so people have to pick up that work. What about the whole delivery yep. sector, right? Transport sector. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, who's mm -hmm. slaughtering animals these days? They're predominantly mm -hmm. migrants. We all know that. Cleaning yep. houses, yep. cleaning offices and go on and, and so on and so forth. And the, the last factor is aging. So the number of, in the past, those jobs typically tended to be done by school leavers. People only had you know, primary school or high school. And more and more people now go onward to go to college, to have higher education. So the number of people who are available to do these jobs has shrunk. So the shortages are real. Of course, there are particular sectors where some competition exists and particularly former migrants uh, um, feel that. And it's a very interesting sociological phenomenon that former migrants often turn against new immigrants. And... Um, To use a Dutch metaphor, we call this the drawbridge phenomenon. So migrants who are in and feel that they've become part of American or European society often turn against new immigrants. And in a way, right, this is yeah. a sign of integration. You've become part of the new nation. You turn mm -hmm. against newcomers. It's a very common sociological mm -hmm. phenomenon and understandable because if there's one group, and that's what a lot of economic research shows, it is not true that migrants' uh, immigration is the main cause of wage stagnation, uh, deteriorating mm -hmm. conditions for lower skilled workers. That's a whole series of economic policies uh, we've been mm -hmm. implementing in, in Western countries. But, and it's also not true that migrants depress wages massively. But if there's, if you look at who benefits most from immigration economically, that's definitely the middle classes and the already affluent parts of the population, because these people benefit primarily from the labor and the services delivered by migrants. It is also true that the lowest income earners don't benefit much from immigration at all. And the very lowest of income earners may indeed see some decline in their wages. These effects are pretty small, but particularly that competition is felt by former migrants who often work in the exact same sectors as new immigrants coming in. And they may feel that new immigrants are somehow a threat to their, uh, to their position. So this is you know, sort of the picture. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's making me think about all the things we hear in the United States all the time of, you know, building a bigger middle class and having getting people into the middle class. And, and I think that sounds nice. I think that that's not necessarily wrong. But it, we don't talk about how do we have, uh, quote unquote, lower skilled people or people that are not middle class um, to to thrive and to flourish and, and that they're at the end of the day, we need those folks to do those jobs. People, as you're saying in hospitality, food and service, 
um, you know, <laughs> the person, you know, the person driving, you know, your, your, you know, your Uber driver or the person yeah. that is, you know, cleaning your house or watching your kids or, you know, those aren't necessarily middle-class jobs, but they're super needed and we need to see them as valuable and worthy and sustainable yeah. for people to live off of. And I that's, think yeah. that's important. That's what, what we saw during COVID, right? That's what we yeah, suddenly started to call yeah. essential or vital jobs. And these were typically uh, yeah. the jobs that couldn't be done from home behind your computer. These were the people right. delivering still your... <laughs> delivering your stuff, you know, your food and, and other stuff at the right. home. And these, are, these are the real essential jobs. And I think yeah, yeah, yeah. it's important to retain that lesson in a way that this is actually, mm. this is the kind of jobs that, you know, make the wheels of the economy turn in a way and are very important. And mm -hmm. often mm -hmm. being seen in a very degraded way of jobs yeah. we don't need, the workers we don't need, in a way we need them more than ever. And if you think about of the course. future... And that, I think, is a real debate for the future, that we need to become honest. We need to come to terms with the reality, because mm. I don't think we can continue to deny that fundamental reality. That doesn't mean that migration uh, never comes with problems. It is more about sure. acknowledging a fundamental truth. And I think everybody knows this in a way. Just look around you, particularly in big cities, but also in agriculture. We know who's doing a lot of those essential jobs. And there's a huge element of denial uh, about that reality. And I, I think pol politics in a way has become caught up in their own fantasies or lies about immigration yeah. or denial of that systematic reality. And I just yeah. gave you that example, right? I mean, the chance of being prosecuted as an employer for employing undocumented migrants is lower or is, is lower than the chance of being hit by lightning in the US. I mean, it's not right, a joke, right. it's real. And no, I, no, 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 I, I, I know, yeah. yeah. And to me, this shows the, the hypocrisy in a way that Absolutely. we are not able to talk truth about immigration. It doesn't mean that migration is always fantastic or that borders should just be opened. But it, we cannot have a real debate about immigration. We cannot design more effective immigration policies if we don't acknowledge the basic truth. Because otherwise we remain stuck in the same old policies we've been recycling over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. That should be clear, I think. And that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. I wrote the book, that I say, well, you can think a lot of things about immigration. You can differ in opinion about what immigration should look like in the future, how our economy should look like in the future, to what extent do we need to depend on immigrants, to what extent is that a good idea. These are all valuable debates. But the politics mm -hmm. of denial have clearly not worked. The massive resources we put into border enforcement, both in Europe and in America, haven't produced any meaningful results actually have backfired in many ways. So yeah, 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 we really totally need agree. to come to terms with that fundamental reality. That doesn't mean that immigration never comes with problems. That's not the point. The point is to yeah. acknowledge the truth. Yeah, no, I, I firmly agree with you on what you're saying. So there's, this, there's two big topics I want to hit and there's some subtopics within them. So, so the next one, so we've, we've talked about migration in terms of you know, economics and, and wages and employment and things like that. Um, and kind of connected with that, how that, you know, really from border control and things like that. But let's talk about now, um, refugees, right? Now this is a, this is a big thing. So maybe we can move, I think this is more salient probably. I mean, I know the United States, the United States, excuse me, takes, uh, refugees, but this will probably more, um, salient for, for Europe. So of course, everybody remembers, uh, 2015, you know, one million refugees walk into Germany, Angela Merkel standing there. And, and I think that 
some of the economic stuff, but really that moment, um, you know, really, I mean, I think she barely won the, her next election and then she just kind of was like, no more. And, and, and we see, um, I don't, I don't want to come, you know, push two things together at the same time, but I'll just flag it and we can get to it, I guess. But mm. we see a lot of right wing populism, you know, in the United States and in you know parts of South America. But then we also see it a lot in, 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 um, uh, in in Europe and in parts of Europe, we see it in you know Hungary and France and you know AFD in Germany is you know pulling over twenty percent now. Uh, you know we we see it in in a lot of different places in 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 the Netherlands as well recently. Yeah. Um, uh, talking about all of these things. So the other big topic we want to talk about is is culture and integration and stuff. So we'll get to that. But let's first just stay with refugees of sorts. I mean, we can talk about Germany. Uh, we can talk about Turkey. Turkey has taken so many Syrian refugees. Um, there's been all of these these different crises from kind of spillover from the Mideast and other parts of the world. It's not just the Mideast um, that are filling into some of these kind of countries. And I can't help but think, at least in the rhetoric that is or how it feels for a lot of folks in these places really pushing People to really take a second look or third look or further voting for these right wing populists, right? And they're just kind of uh, these opportunists of sorts at the moment and what's going on. How do we understand? You, you, you claim there's not a global like refugee crisis, and you can talk about that or, 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 you know, kind of globally, but how do we understand in some of these areas with certain wars and certain conflicts of many refugees coming? To neighboring countries, so you know, Turkey is one of them, uh, Germany, yeah. other places. How do we understand this? How do we understand what's been happening in, in Europe over the past, you know, let, let's say seven to ten years? Let's start to look at the numbers first, and then look at the politics around it. So, Please, yeah. if you look at if you look at refugees coming to Europe, whether you look at European level or the level of individual countries like Germany or the Netherlands or France, we see a uh, going up and down constant pattern of going up and down of numbers of refugees. It's very erratic refugee movements, much more than labor, and obviously predominantly dependent on the level of conflict in origin countries. So if mm-hmm. you go back to the 1990s, there was also a huge migra- uh, refugee movement from former Yugoslavia, for instance. And with mm-hmm. the Iraq war, there was another wave. And with the Syria war... But more recently, a much bigger migration, refugee migration occurs from Ukraine and didn't cause any political reaction in Europe. They were actually welcomed in Europe. It was a much bigger movement than the Syrians we talked about 10 years earlier. And what it shows to me, this is not really about numbers. So when you look at the longer term also in Europe, and Europe is, of course, the geopolitics of Europe is very different in in terms of we share huge borders with the Middle East, with with Africa, um, and it's in a way much easier to get to Europe. It's very difficult to imagine that you could ever seal off that border. So if they're... Is a conflict happening, let's say, in Syria, which is not that far away from Europe, some people will end up um, entering Europe. Um, but we don't, again, see a structural long-term increase. It is particularly very erratic what we see going up and down. What you see is a particular refugee crisis are being exploited by politicians. No. Again, if you look at refugees in Europe, you get this impression that a big share of migration to Europe is about refugees. Both with, from within Europe, you get that impression, but also, I think, from outside of Europe. Because that's what you see, right? 
you're confronted with those images. Indeed, you were alluding to the Syrian refugee crisis. But again, in Europe, it is, well, depending a bit on the country you're talking about, but roughly we talk about 10% of all immigration is about refugees. And again, in Europe, the big issue is if you look at developments of immigration into Europe, it's not that dissimilar from the United States of America. We see a structural increase in immigration over the last 10 to 20 years to Europe. This has been predominantly about labor. In the Netherlands, for instance, the number of labor migrants has quadrupled in the last 15 years. The share of asylum seekers have gone down from roughly half of all immigration to only one-tenth. So the real increase is in labor. and we have eased up European migration within the European Union. We have made it easier for non-Europeans to apply for work visas to come to Europe. And that is the reality of immigration, that the structural increase in immigration has been about labor. And, well, I cannot look into the heads of politicians, but you'd get the impression that this asylum is being exploited almost as a sideshow to the real issue, that the real structural increase in migration is not about labor, it's not about asylum. It's about labor. And, but it's very selective as well. And that's why I'm alluding to the case of um, Ukrainians coming to Europe, which was a massive movement last year and didn't cause any political uproar. And you may say, well, these were Europeans and that's why it was easier to accept. Well, the bottom line is it's a matter of political will. It's a matter of political leadership. So if politicians say there are too many refugees, we can no longer deal with it, that is an historical fallacy in a way, because numbers aren't historically high. It is really about lack of political will and a certain drive amongst politicians to exploit those crises, to create this image. We can no longer deal with it and derive the attention away from the real issue. Yes, we do see increasing immigration also into Europe, like in the United States, but I'm coming, it becomes a bit boring perhaps, but I'm coming back to the basic issue, which is about the economy. And it's a reality that also in Europe we're not willing to accept and acknowledge. So, okay, let me, so let's bring up the other big topic then, because I think this will, we can kind of land on this here. I think this is very uh, germane to the, to, the, to the discussion here. Because you, you, the, 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 the example you give about Ukrainians uh, and then let's say Syrians for, for, for examples uh, seems to be, uh, interesting. So let, let's take the, the, the example with, uh, with the recent election in Turkey this year, right? Now, this is just an example, but and I'm, not, I'm not by any means an authority on this, right? I followed it a little bit. But there was a lot of people that were very upset with uh, Erdogan, right? He, he, he kind of really didn't do so well with their big earthquake in southeast uh, Turkey, on the border of, of, of Syria, uh, he's been a little bit more uh, authoritarian, kind of, you know, winking, nodding towards that kind of thing. Uh, and people, there was some dissatisfaction. Um, and it's, it, my understanding is that, is that the major, the other, other candidate there, it was uh, much more um, uh, moderate, if you will, and kind of easygoing about things. but he had this interesting idea or policy about he was pretty hard on Syrian refugees. And a lot of uh, folks in Turkey didn't like that, right? And then there's other people that yeah. did. And it, this yeah. all became part of, again, it, it, <laughs> politics around the world isn't really that different. It's just, you know, kind of different no. names and titles and shapes and whatever. But it really is sort of the same thing. 
And I know nationalism is a little bit bigger in Turkey. Granted, um, post-Ottoman, you know, that maybe that that's somewhat important, I guess. I don't know. There's some people can debate that, but I I guess this is question. This is the biggest question. I think, I think, I think a lot of people listening could probably get on board with a lot of things that you're saying, right? Yep. Economic labor demand and or shortages. Uh, yes, okay, there's, you know, kind of across the board, numbers maybe aren't so good in pockets, yes, okay. But I think, I think that people, well, this kind of goes to my first question, is if you come to a country and your culture or your background is too different and there is not some attempts at acculturating and or assimilating to the culture of that new country, people have a really big distaste for that. And that, that is also true for uh, immigrants that, because as you mentioned, the kind of uh, the drawbridge kind of analogy, right? Of there yeah. was the previous generation, they did that, they came, they assimilated. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be full assimilation. There's a healthy amount learning the language, learning the culture, learning the certain holidays or traditions, et cetera. Um, and if the next generation doesn't do that, there's almost, they're almost harder on that, even if they're from the same country of origin, because it's like, look, I came here, I made sacrifices, I had to do this. You, you also have to, to do a little bit of that as well. I think that's where people become pretty animated about immigration for certain countries, especially if you have countries that have long histories uh, or long traditions or a certain distinct culture, and there are mass amounts of people coming from a very different uh, culture. I don't think this means that people in these places are xenophobic or, you know, things like that. I mean, I'm sure there's, that's everywhere, but I don't think that's, that's a healthy way of discussing it. I think there's legitimate concerns about too much, too fast. And where this kind of, where we cash, where people cash that check is I'm going to go and, and yeah, there's a lot of things I don't like about this politician. Maybe he's extreme, he or she is extreme, but you know what? They're getting this under control, right? And there, and that's the perception. And then, as I mentioned, this sort of kind of right wing populism that swept uh, Europe in some ways. And it's also happened here on, on across the, the, the pond over in the U.S. How do we understand this idea, one idea of this is about in countries that are more diverse now than before, this idea between di- ethnic diversity and social trust, right? Of having this way of how can I understand in my community how I can trust somebody if they're not willing to kind of buy into the, the mores and the norms and some of the cultural things that's already established. So how much of this kind of in all parts of the world uh, is really a central issue, this kind of culture and assimilation and things like that? I think these concerns are not new at all. So if you look at different um, waves of immigration, also in the past one and a half century, almost all across the West, those concerns have always been there. And I think on the local level, it's totally understandable. If you live in a neighborhood or in a street where suddenly the population is fundamentally changing, I think it's logical that people will say you can forever talk about a three or 15% of the population being an immigrant, but that doesn't mean much to me because in my neighborhood, 
everything has changed over the last right. you know, 10 years. Right. That is totally understandable. I give some examples as well in my book about the town in Alabama, for instance, where the demographic completely changed just in the time span of 10 or 20 years. Of course, it's upsetting if you live in a particular place, particularly when you're, you've been living there your whole life and everything seems to be changing. So that discontent is totally understandable. But I think the misunderstanding is, so those worries are understandable. That politicians try to exploit that, I think that's into the nature of politics. But I think the misunderstanding is that this is something new. So mm. we were talking about the deeper history of immigration. Always when newcomers have come in, this, this has created worries. Now, what in my mind politicians should be doing is addressing those worries. Um, mm. For instance, when you talk about refugees in the case of Europe, there's a huge issue in the Netherlands about refugee reception centers. And I think it's understandable because what the Dutch government is doing is is building those big refugee reception centers in very small villages. And I can understand mm. if you live in a small village yeah. and there's suddenly hundreds of asylum seekers living in your local community, that's too big of a change to swallow. And it does mm-hmm. create reactions, which is understandable. Well, mm. my answer to that is politicians should be doing something about that, you know, to make sure that local communities can handle this or perhaps not to concentrate people all in the same place and, and do something about that and do something about schooling and make sure that local schools and healthcare facilities don't get overcrowded and there is enough housing available. And that's eventually a responsibility of government. What you see with labor migration is that we benefit from the labor of immigrants, particularly to the benefit of business and the really affluent and destination societies. But we, in a way, as a society and as a government, we don't really take responsibility for the social consequences of immigration. So I think what you can say more in general is that the benefits and the downsides of migration are not equally distributed in destination countries. I think we already pointed out that it's primarily the already affluent that reap the economic benefits of immigration, whereas the lower skilled workers, whether migrant or non-migrant, don't benefit much from additional immigration. But these are typically the people who see the day-to-day consequences of immigration. And from that perspective, it's logical that people say, well, what's in, what's in it for me? And then it's very attractive for politicians yeah. to, in a way, exploit this content people feel. And this is not just about immigration. We talk about, we talked about this before already, hey, wage stagnation, a <laughs> uh, huge waiting list for healthcare, overcrowded or bad quality schools, increasing cost of education, but generally cost of living. Real, real worries people have and, and real reasons for this content. Then to put everything on immigration, it becomes very attractive for politicians. Instead of taking responsibility for those real problems that exist, that cannot only be put on the shoulders of immigrants because it's very attractive for politicians to do that. So I do think that is the game that's being played, that the same politicians that are responsible for those policies that have made many people's lives worse rather than better over the last, let's say, 10, 20 years, in many, particularly in rural areas amongst lower income earners, both native workers and people of migrant origin, of course, have valid reasons to say, well, my life hasn't improved. Plus, I'm confronted with all these change in my life created by immigration. And yeah, then it becomes a very, very attractive, um, um, very attractive thing for politicians to exploit this content and to say, well, actually the real cause of your problems is immigration. Now, migration may be part of it, but it's only a very, very small part of it. 
to talk about the issue of social trust, there's a huge uh, scientific literature on this. And you can disagree or agree, and in some cases you find a positive effect of diversity, in some cases a negative effect, and the average effects may be positive or negative. I think the real issue is that the main determinant of social trust is not immigration. It has to do with different issues, like inequality, for instance. We know that societies that are more unequal economically generally have a lower level of social trust because people don't meet each other anymore between classes. People don't go to the same schools anymore. It's a form of income segregation, basically, that creates distance within societies. If people don't, no longer live in the same neighborhoods, don't go to the same schools. So it's often economic segregation that actually triggers social distrust. We know that from the literature. Now, what the effect of migration is, there are a lot of different, I said there's a whole debate, but the impact of migration is actually much smaller than we think. And what politicians do is suggest that immigration is the main cause of all these problems. And it's politically very attractive to do that. Okay, so a few things on that. I mean, I, I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I wonder, so it, there's a few things here, and, and, I, and I get, kind of goes back to the thing that you were saying earlier about we need to have uh, politicians and or government officials um, taking these things seriously because when yeah. they don't, we, yes, we have right-wing populism and rhetoric, which is inflammatory and yes, xenophobic sometimes, and that's not acceptable. But uh, for example, I'll give you two examples. In the United States, there have been reports, uh, you see what uh, Eric Adams does in, in New York City, where he, he's, he's really having to make uh, budget and fiscal choices of how to deal with, uh, because I, I think some parts of them are, are a, um, a sanctuary city, uh, really having to make hard budget choices. And people there are saying, whoa, I'm struggling here and you want to take care of other folks. I mean, that's, that's going to give uh, people's votes come election. We have an election here in the United States in, in this coming yeah. year in 2024. You know, that's, that's giving people right away because that has real impact. You see this uh, similar things in Chicago have also happened as yeah. well. But even, even recently, as recently as, um, as today, as you know, we're, we're recording this on a, on a Monday here in December, uh, the governor of Texas signs this, this, uh, this bill, this a border bill saying that if you enter Texas illegally, it's a state crime. So, I mean, it, you ha when people aren't dealing with this or politicians or people aren't actively being honest about this, you have these, you know, slightly draconian or really uh, malicious types of ways of trying to, you know, put a Band-Aid on a bigger problem, which really, I think, just yeah. backfires at the long run. How do, we, how, do we, how do we navigate that? Because you're saying, yes, you can understand that for local communities or small towns or whatever, that is yeah. a shock. And I think most people could see that. But that doesn't mean that it's the responsibility of cities or urban areas either 100%. So, I mean, again, I know you're not a politician and all these things, but what do we think about the pragmatics of trying to, to deal with these things? I think what we see is a shocking lack of political leadership on the issue. We've been talking about this, <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. About this reality. And I, I, I think we can no longer... Politicians got caught up in their own 
fantasies, propaganda, lies about these issues, because we just know that only border enforcement is not going to solve the issue. Of course, of course. Uh, we have to acknowledge those realities. And I think we are now getting a situation with 11 million undocumented migrants in the US. The whole issue of immigration reform in a total stillmate for the last two to three decades. I mean, both Republican and Democratic presidents yes. have tried to implement yes. this and it's been systematically blocked. I think it really goes to a point it is no longer responsible politically. Nobody in the United States believes that the 11 million undocumented migrants currently in the US will all be one day deported back mm-hmm. to their origin countries. Some form of comprehensive immigration reform is necessary. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm not a politician, but what I can say is that And I said it before, unless we acknowledge the fundamental reality, the fundamental truth, we can start thinking about solutions. And then you really have to go beyond your border control, because I'm not saying we should give up any form of immigration control. But if you don't align in some way your immigration policy with your economic realities, you're going to create the problems we have right now. So you either change the way your labor market works or you start to enforce also no, workplace controls more seriously, but that means you'll harm business, right? And these, these are real issues. And it doesn't mean we should always uh, implement immigration reform uh, to the wishes of business. I'm not saying that, but we now have a total hypocrisy where the same politicians that espouse all these rhetorics about cracking down on borders, more tougher mm-hmm. border controls, but it's just more of the same. We've been hearing this for the last 30 years. And mm-hmm. while well, one of the definitions of insanity is trying the same thing over and over and over <laughs> again right. and expect different right. results. <laughs> right. And right, a right, very right. prominent migration researcher, Douglas Massey from Princeton, has run this Mexican migration project. He's collected thousands and thousands of surveys over the last decades. And he's really looked into this and he has hard quantitative evidence that this policy completely backfired because they transformed this more or less circular movement of workers from back and forth from Mexico to a few U.S. states, mainly California and Texas, of people came over to do work for a few months or years and went back and forth, have transformed that circular movement into a permanent settlement of, of, of large numbers of migrants, have also driven migration further and further underground has made it easy to exploit migrant workers and create all of these knock-on effects we see right now in a lot of U.S. cities. And of course, mayors are complaining. Like, this is no longer sustainable, but it's because we deny a fundamental truth. So only border controls are not going to solve the issue if we don't address the underlying causes of this phenomenon. And the only way out of this, so this is why I say politics has gotten caught up in their own lies or denial, whatever you call it. The only way out of this is political leadership. You need to have politicians who have the courage to talk the truth story about immigration. And I do believe there is some reason, it sounds all very pessimistic what we're saying. The interesting thing, if you look at public opinion, I also address this in my book, there is this image that the public is, the opinion is turning against immigration. The evidence is much more nuanced. If you look at public opinion research, yeah, a lot of people have concerns about immigration. A lot of people have mixed opinions about migration because most people understand, particularly in America, most people do understand that migrants do useful jobs. At the same time, people have those concerns we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, people, the ordinary people, seem more level-headed about immigration than when you listen to a lot of politicians. And the second thing, and that is really where it gets interesting, 
the share of uh, U.S. citizens, but you also see the same in Europe, who thinks slightly positively about immigration or very positively about migration is actually increasing, not decreasing. That's a long-term trend. We even we see that across the political board. On average, for instance, Republican voters are more negative about immigration than Democratic voters. But the overall trend is actually towards more acceptance of immigration. It doesn't mean open the border. It just means I do think there is a real demographic out there that is ready for a different story. And I think we really need politicians, a new generation of politicians who dares to tell the truth that to a certain extent, immigration is inevitable, also of lower skilled migrants, because I think that's the big taboo. And second, to really start a real debate about immigration, which to me is a debate about the kind of society and economy we want to live in in the future. Who's going to take care of our elderly? Who is going to take care of our sick and our kids? And who is going to provide all those services? Do we want to outsource all these services to a sort of new class of servants consisting of migrants? Uh, or do we want to create a different kind of society and economy? And these are fundamental debates. We don't have time for that here, I'm afraid. But it cannot just be the border control because, you know, if you only do that, you just scratch on the surface and you do a lot of things that we didn't intend to do, but actually seem to backfire. Yet you drive it on the ground, you increase the market for smuggling, you increase the suffering yeah. of immigrants. And yeah. then you create, that's what I said, we, we have created in a way our own immigration crisis. This is not about desperate um, waves of people coming into the US or into Europe. This is about a normal immigration driven by predominantly by labor demand, to some extent by conflict and oppression in origin countries, a pretty normal migration that we have systematically denied. And, and then we create this problem because we don't address the real root causes of it. So mm -hmm. we just are stuck in this vicious cycle. And I think it is really time now for and that's yeah, actually the reason why i wrote the book because i gave up talking to politicians in the sense of i've heard too often from politicians and high level policymakers say well i know you're right i know the evidence is there but if i say this in public it's political suicide i think the public deserves to know and i think we need a serious debate about immigration and we haven't seen a serious debate about immigration It's been basically about emotion. It is basically about rhetoric. It is not, and I think politicians should no longer get away with this. And mm -hmm, I know this mm -hmm. cannot happen overnight, but it, this one of yeah, that's a, one of the contributions I wanted to make with my book. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I'll just say, um, you know, as someone that uh, you know, I'm I'm a moderate liberal. I'm, I'm you know, I'm on the left. You know, it it it, it depresses me to no end how much uh, Democrats in the United States uh, completely, you know, fumbled this every, I mean, every election cycle, you know, every, every time there's an issue, um, they don't talk honestly about uh, border control. I think that's a, that's a fact that that should, that, that's not an inhumane thing. You should control the border. You should talk about it, right? This idea of open yeah. borders or quasi open borders is preposterous, right? But the further thing is, is that, When you don't talk honestly about an issue that everybody is impacted by or most people are impacted by, you leave a void for right-wing populism. You leave a void for the extremism of another side that does kind of flirt with xenophobic uh, tendencies. And if you gave 
actual policies or you gave something, you know, there's a way, there's the policy and then there's the way you sell it, right? And how you kind of, you know, put it together for, for the average person. But if you're able to do both of those and able to say, listen, there's the economic piece of it. There's a way in which we can still protect people. We can protect people here. We can be firm on, on, on the border. Like there's so many good people working on this. The, the reason why they, they, they don't do this is beyond me. And I understand the politics of it, of sorts, but it's, it's somebody has to take the risk and say, look, I'm going to get enough people to be like, yeah, I, I, I want to hear that. I mean, and it's not going to be, I mean, sending, you know, Kamala Harris to Guatemala saying, don't come here anymore. Like that's not getting at the root cause of an issue. That's ridiculous. Right. No. Like that's, 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 that's so that, that, that so, shows yeah. the absolute tone deaf nature of Democrats of not dealing with this. But meantime, you have somebody like uh, former President Trump and other people on the right talking about they're rapists and murderers and they're bringing, you know, fentanyl and they're going to take your jobs. And like, and people believe that because, you know, people operate under fear. And the other side is not doing anything to counter it. Their counter is we got to love everybody and accept everybody. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And I don't think that works in any country that way. People are going to be like, nope, that's not going to work for me. So basically, both on the left and the right, you see that politicians are are selling myths about immigration. Mm-hmm. We just mentioned that one example of you also see this in Europe, like, oh, we should send more development aid to Africa so less people will come to Europe. Again, it's fundamentally denying the reality, underlying the issue. And I think the politics of denial, we see a total bankruptcy. And I really think it is responsibility for a new generation of politicians yeah. to tell a real story. I'm not cynical because I think that is really what, what I think intellectuals, researchers, journalists need to press for in a way that you no longer can get away with this. And, and what I find so important is to, to show there is a science behind this. This is not just opinionating. We can just objectively track why policies have been failing. And I think politicians should be held accountable for the fact that the policies, I say it's just more of the same. Why do you think the same policy is going to be effective this time around? It's just creating this huge sideshow on the border that is not going to solve any issue. It's an excellent opportunity for politicians to yeah, make of themselves showmen who's going to save the nation, who's going to stop mm-hmm. all these people. But mm-hmm. we know it's not going to have the desired effect because mm-hmm. it doesn't address the real root cause of issues. And unless you have a real immigration debate, you're not going to address those issues. And I don't think we can afford, in a way, to continue this way. We are on a 30-year sort of dead track, dead end track, really, and we can no longer afford to continue this way because otherwise we, yeah, we, we are in this fantasy land almost, and it gets mm-hmm. dangerous, I think. The debate yeah, is course. so much disconnected from the reality and politicians being too afraid to tell the real story of immigration, which in my view is one of, yes, immigration has... Some benefits has some downsides. It's not something we can just think a wish away. And this is what you basically see. And that's how we started the conversation, right? It's there. Um, To be against or in favor of migration, I've been asked that question many times. I said, well, it's a stupid way to talk about this topic. Have you ever asked an economist whether he or she is in favor against the economy. Or you know, if you want to regulate markets, you're not going to systematically deny the existence of markets. So if you want to regulate migration, you need to acknowledge 
to a certain extent, the inevitability of it. It's always been there. Mm. And that's the paradox. Once you start to acknowledge the inevitability of it, then you can actually put in place policies that allow you to better control it. That is the big paradox. Because mm -hmm. if as the longer we deny the systematic realities, the more out of control we are in a way. Yeah. It's, yeah. So that's what I'm trying to say. We created this migration crisis because nobody can deny. I, I've been there in El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. It's, it's a crisis, obviously. People are suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's not something to be denied. But it's a self-inflicted crisis. And as long as we keep on buying into this illusion that just border controls only are going to solve the problem, we know that even a perfect wall, right. you were mentioning it before, is not going to solve the issue because the majority of undocumented migrants came in legally and overstayed their visas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a fundamental reality. And yeah. that doesn't mean we should give up any form of immigration control. I think both open and closed borders is a complete illusion. It's not a serious way of talking about immigration. Unless right. we want to live in North Korea or something like that, or yeah, yeah. just create a solution of just let's open the border. That's not a serious way to talk about it. Any any state wants some level of control about who is able to come, to stay, to pick up work, to pick up citizenship. You need a set of rules. We actually have those rules. It's not that everything is a big failure. I think the main issue is actually about, we talked about it before, about this lower skilled work. There mm -hmm. is where you really mm -hmm. see the huge stretch and the huge gap between rhetorics and reality and yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally i totally i totally agree with you and, and yeah people are closed or open borders you know whatever this is not serious people they're not they're not they're not no, having, it's not having serious, serious yeah it's not a serious yeah. conversation and right yeah. you know overstaying visas i mean i think if the real thing uh i mean i talked about this years ago with with people i know that you know if you really got serious about immigration you would uh penalize people that uh, hire people uh, illegally, right? You know, you should. You, that's that's a big problem there. Like that's not that's not acceptable. Well, but, I just floated. It, it happens. Yeah, I floated that statistic that you know the, the, the almost laughably low levels of workplace enforcement just show there's no real political will to do something about it. Yeah. And whether you talk about Republicans or Democrats, it doesn't make a big difference. And that's yeah, another yeah. thing we found in our research when we collected all this migration policy data at the University of Oxford and we put it in one big database. We didn't find any difference between left and right wing politicians, between Republicans and Democrats in terms of the kind it's of politicians. It's just the rhetoric. Legal, legal admissions to the US reach an all time high under the Trump presidency. And that's not what you hear. You get this no. impression about cracking down on the border. So it's this almost sideshow that distracts the attention away from the real issue. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. So the, the last question I have for you is, um, you talk about this migration uh, trilemma, which we've kind of been talking about. Um, so, you know, controlling immigration, uh, some of the economic interest, interest, excuse me, and more migration and human rights towards migrants and refugees. Uh, so it's kind of the dilemma we have, or trilemma. So how do we... How do we go about trying to fix that without going towards, you know, extremism on either side and really decide what is the kind of society we want collectively? I mean, I'm not a politician, um, <laughs> but I think you could look around how different countries do it in different ways, right? Um, we may have talked about this already earlier. Now, the example of Japan, I often use it as a sort of... Uh, Mm -hmm. mirror example of an extreme example of a country that deals with immigration in a very different way than most other Western countries do. Yep. Japan also is facing the reality that they also have huge labor shortages. Mm -hmm. Also, Japan is, is having to deal with the fact that they are also partly dependent on immigrants coming in, but overall rates of 
immigration to Japan are way lower than they are to most other Western countries. And it's interesting to look at the reasons for that. And I think it warrants more research, but some reasons seem to be pretty obvious. It's not only because of Japan being an island and being very culturally distinct. These may be factors, but Japan also has a way more regulated labor market. Mm. Japanese work much longer, far into their 70s, often up to 75. That's one of the ways they deal with aging. And Mm. Japan may have settled for lower levels of economic growth. And I use Japan more as an example to reflect. You know, if we really are, let's say, if there is a majority of Americans or people in some European country wanting to have less immigration, if that's a democratic decision, I think there's nothing illegitimate with having a preference for lower immigration as long as it doesn't devolve into racist language and, and divisive yeah. language. Agreed. That's f- I'm fine with that if you want that, but then you need to get serious. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think the science of immigration comes in. Think, well, then you have to look at what do you need to do? And you were just talking about the source. Yeah? Um, so we've talked about this huge taboo to talk about lower skilled labor and high skilled labor. If there's a big trend all across the West, in a way, policies about where we have liberalized the economy, where we've made easier for for employers to get people from abroad, where we have um, basically governments have given up controlling the economy more and more. We have more and more this laissez-faire kind of system, not just in the US, but also in Britain, in the Netherlands, many other countries. So we have made it easier, actually. We've created all sorts of unattractive jobs that only migrants will pick up. Now, the real question is, to what extent do we need to continue this trend towards growing uh, liberalization of the labor market, less and less government interference, low wages? These are all connected things. But of course, it will harm in some sectors. But it doesn't mean that couldn't be a political choice. Do we really want to, and I raised this issue before, I'm not a politician, uh, but I say, well, if you really want less immigration, you probably have to create an economy that is not growing as fast anymore. Uh, You will have a more regulated labor market. You may hurt some business sector seriously. And it could be a political choice. And the question is, do we want that or don't we want that? Do we want to inch a little bit in the direction of Japan in the longer term? How are we going to deal with aging? Because aging is also hitting the United States. Birth rates are really going down also in the United States. This is going to be a long-term issue. It's going to be a global issue, I want to add. I also address this in my book that uh, declining birth rates is becoming a global issue right now. All across Latin America, for instance, you see that birth rates are going down really fast. All across the Middle East, a lot of the major origin countries... It's not going to have a major effect right now, but in 10, 20 years from now, it's going to change the global picture of immigration. And that's bringing up a very different issue. Can we still assume that there is this quasi-unlimited pool of cheap labor willing to come to pick Mm -hmm. up all these jobs? That may be a real issue in the future. And so the whole broader issue of how do we deal with aging, who's going to take care of our sick and elderly, who's going to teach our kids in the future, these are issues that cannot be solved by immigration. We know that as well. So we really need a more serious debate about, you know, the future of our society, which is aging, and that is an unstoppable process. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's just, just all these challenges that are 
compounding. I used to hear certain people I know, you know, kind of going on and on and on about oh, an overpopulation. I was like, yeah, I wouldn't be worried about that. That <laughs> um, uh, we have, we'll probably have the, the opposite worry in, in a couple of years. Well, yeah. the 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 book is called How Migration Really Works: The Facts About the Most Divisive Issue in Politics, out through the wonderful Basic uh, Books. Uh, people can pick this up. Hein, uh, this was. Such a, a, a really a much needed uh, and fabulous conversation. I, I really thought about this uh, a lot and I think about immigration a, a lot actually. And so I was, I loved your book and I was uh, really excited to talk with you. So I, I greatly appreciate your, your time and energy and your wisdom uh, and all the work that you're doing. So, so a big, big thanks for coming on and, and talking about these important issues. Thanks, I really enjoyed the conversation as well. So thanks. Absolutely.